Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The events in Ukraine perhaps should have all of us thinking a bit more about what we so often take for granted. Democracy our personal freedoms, and the rule of law. Why, despite its flaws, our constitutional system with its separation of powers is infinitely preferable to dictatorships and thuggish autocracies. This week, we share a conversation that touches on how our democracy is organized and also what we expect of politicians. It comes from our friends at the podcast called Democracy Paradox, the case for representative democracy with Lisa Dish. The tension in what we want from democratic representation is that we want control over our representatives and we want creativity from them. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? Today, a spirited defense of multi-party representative democracy as an engine for progress. It's a highly relevant conversation as the military invasion of eastern Ukraine comes at a time when many are claiming that global democracy is on the decline. Assuming that we want to protect our own cherished freedoms, what sort of democracy should we have? Jim is away this week, and so we're going to share edited extracts from an interview published by another podcast, Democracy Paradox, which is hosted by Justin Kempf. His show and ours are members of the Democracy Group Network, where you can hear challenging, fascinating, and sometimes difficult ideas about democracy and governance. On Democracy Paradox, Justin interviews scholars. Recently, he spoke with Lisa Dish, the author of the book Making Constituencies, Representation as Mobilization in Mass Democracy. Lisa is a professor of political science at the University of Michigan, also an elected member of the Ann Arbor City Council. She's a longtime member of the Democratic Party, and most of the movements and examples she will cite do come from the left. But what's discussed here should be of interest to us, whether we be conservatives, liberals, populists, libertarians, or progressives. Here's Justin's first question to Lisa Dish. Should elected officials serve as representatives of their constituents or as the leaders who themselves become the opinion shapers? 
I think that it is normal to think that political representation involves a kind of mirroring. And so we judge our elected officials based on how well they reflect who their constituents are and what those constituents want. And we imagine that constituencies form around common interests and then they lobby or they elect representatives and the representatives respond to those demands. And if democracy doesn't serve that, we think it's broken. But my book really asks you to change the way you think about representation. There is lots of research that shows that only a fraction of the public knows enough about the details of different feasible policy options to be able to be represented in this way that we imagine. Here's what I want. You do it. And you explain to me how you did it or what you changed if you didn't do it exactly that way. I mean, I may know in very broad strokes what I prefer, but an election campaign is going to give me slogans like Medicare for all or single payer system or health insurance vouchers. And these slogans not only define what's at stake in that election, but they map out positions on that conflict within and between the parties. And even those slogans provide only the most general policy guidance. What they really do is they get people's attention, they shape opinion, they make them think that real change hinges on this election, and it motivates people to vote. This, to me, is what representation does. It mobilizes. Representation of all kinds, elected officials, advocacy groups, charismatic individuals, they participate in crafting political demands, in telling us what we're fighting over, and in bringing us into the fight. So when you ask, should elected officials reflect or shape opinion? For me, it's not a question of should. In mass democracies, representatives do shape opinion, and they do mobilize constituencies. I think we should want representatives to bring people into the political process. So Lisa, it's an odd line, though, because on the one hand, the leaders can be crafting these constituencies and bringing people into the political process. But from another perspective, it's not the people organically rising up and demanding certain things. It can sometimes feel like a form of manipulation, if you will. So when we think about political leadership, when do we cross the line between forming constituencies and acting as democratic leaders versus becoming manipulators of public opinion? That is an excellent question. And I think that we often think about representation in terms of this opposition between leadership and manipulation. And we think about leadership as being when I take a group of people who have formed, there is something that troubles them, but they don't maybe know the solution to it. They may not even quite be able to name the problem. And so leadership would be my talking to them and listening to them and helping them figure out what their problem is and helping them think about a viable or feasible solution to that problem. And then I would try to bring more leaders together to champion this group. Those would be acts of leadership on my part. And I think sometimes representatives do this, but I think it's rare, actually, that really consequential numbers of people organize themselves. Lisa Dish, let's talk about organizing, because that is something which is really difficult for most of us to do. We lack the personal or professional resources to bring 
important issues to our fellow citizens. That's where elected leaders can come in. But for them, there's often a fine line between manipulation and listening to the needs of their constituents. If we are really talking about democracy, democracy is going to require what I talk about as mobilization. And when I say, who's for Medicare for all? We may feel that that's manipulative because it is actually putting a thought in your head. You know, maybe you didn't wake up this morning thinking about healthcare reform. In the 1970s, you didn't wake up in the morning thinking about lead in your gasoline. But we thought about that for you, and we got you to be willing to pay more money for unleaded gasoline. That wasn't something that you asked for. You, I'm speaking broadly, I'm imagining the Democratic public. So we want to imagine that people speak for and name themselves. And I think this is idealistic, but not realistic. And I believe strongly that we want broad mobilization, and we want to meet the interests of broad swaths of the population, not just the most well-organized, to whom it comes most naturally to identify what they benefit from and to ask for that. And so I am willing to tolerate more of what might look like manipulation from a sort of an idealist perspective where we imagine this constituency organically emerging. But I also do think that there is a line. I think there is a line between legitimate democratic representation and manipulation. And I think that we often think that manipulation takes that form, that form of lying. But there was a wonderful article that was published in June uh, 2005 in the New York Review of Books by Mark Danner. And Danner tells the story of how the U.S. and Britain got involved in the Iraq War. And he talks about how, as the leaders of those countries discussed, should we go to war or not? It was agreed that we were going to go to war, but that we had to act as if we had gone through a process of investigation, that we had given Saddam Hussein an ultimatum. You tell us where your weapons of mass destruction are, and you give them up, or we're going to go to war on you. Now, Saddam Hussein had no weapons of mass destruction at that point, and the process that was staged for the public to make this war look legitimate, which was looking for these weapons of mass destruction, didn't turn them up. That, to me, is manipulation. And it's not simply lying. It's acting deceptively. It's pretending to do something that you are not doing. You are not conducting an investigation to decide if this war is warranted. You've decided that you need to wage this war, and you have staged a pretense to bring the public along. You might want to say that's just lying, but I don't think, I think that's worse. <laughs> I think that's putting on a production that pulls the wool over the public's eyes and makes them agree to something that they wouldn't have thought maybe that it was worth spending the money and the lives on. Instead of looking at it from leaders who might manipulate the public, let's actually think of a few examples where the public did organically organize. And I can think of a few examples like Black Lives Matter. I can think of Occupy Wall Street. Over in Spain, there was the Indignados movement as well. One of the complaints out of all of these different movements was that when you have leaderless movements that don't have defined leadership, it's very difficult for them to negotiate with anyone to be able to get things accomplished. There's nobody to talk to, it's not clear. When the movements achieved its goals, 
or when they've even made progress. Because I think you've thought a lot about this. When you do have these leaderless movements that do arise, do those actually provide solutions in the end? Compared to civil rights movements like Martin Luther King, who had a very defined leadership structure where he was able to produce actual tangible legislation. I just want to make that clear. Yep, absolutely. And specific demands and was working a legal strategy as well as a protest strategy, as well as a voter registration strategy, as well as a elect people to Congress strategy. That is a big difference between the civil rights movement and the kinds of movements that you mentioned. Let's just take Occupy Wall Street for a moment. And yeah, that movement really kind of branded itself as horizontal and leaderless. You know, there was very much a desire to resist anything that was top down. Now, this movement was not without its own acts of representation, even so. The slogan, we are the 99%, was not true empirically, <laughs> right? I mean, these are first world folks imagining themselves to be among the 99% poorest of the globe. Not true, but incredibly effective. What they were saying was, we are in a time of tremendous, unprecedented inequality where wealthy people have way too much. You know, their wealth translates directly into politics, because especially in America, where we have things like political advertising and almost unconstrained spending on it. Not all countries have that, but we do. And that is an accurate diagnosis, and it mobilized people. And so one of the things that I would say about Occupy Wall Street is the movement did represent, even though they thought of themselves as horizontal, they drew a picture of the world and they recruited people into their strategy of occupation with that slogan. And I think it was incredibly effective. Now, I'm not going to say that they were examples of representative democracy because that wouldn't be fair to them. They weren't. And that's not what they wanted to be. Then on this point, I think that you have identified something that was a limitation for Occupy Wall Street. The scope of what would need to be changed in order to answer their critique of the system means that they need control of levers of power that they did not want to tangle with. So if you really want to deal with contemporary capitalism and the inequalities that it creates both socially and politically, you will need to be elected to power. They did change the discourse, though. Wow, did they ever change the discourse? I mean, even just in the election between Obama and Romney, you saw that Romney's gaffe, where he talked about the 43% that want to vote for Obama because Democrats just give you everything and you don't have to work, that rang so differently in the context defined by Occupy Wall Street. Bernie Sanders' campaigns I think, were enabled by the kind of discursive shift. The very fact that Sanders can make socialism something that my students are cheering for in the classroom, <laughs> that did not used to be the case, I can tell you. And so these shifts in terms of the story that people tell themselves about what American democracy needs and what would be productive for it, these shifts are incredibly important. Lisa Dish speaking with Justin Kempf on... Democracy Paradox, a podcast from the Democracy Group Network. Our show is called How Do We Fix It? Jim is away this week. I'm Richard Davies. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Some citizen-led political action comes from the right as well as from the left. Recent examples include spontaneous protests by parents over mask mandates in schools, the truckers' blockades against vaccine requirements in Canada and other countries, the Gilets Jaunes movement in France, which erupted over higher taxes on gasoline and diesel fuel. Next, Justin asked Lisa Dish about what she calls the constituency paradox, the confusion over how much we want our elected representatives to lead while at the same time following the popular will. Many of us hold two equally powerful expectations for democracy that conflict with each other, but they're both valid. We feel that democracy is meaningless if constituencies have no control over the representatives who act in their names. Yet, democracy would also be meaningless if our public policies transform nothing, if they reflect exactly what we think we want at this very moment. So the tension in what we want from democratic representation is that we want control over our representatives and we want creativity from them. If we control them, they are delegates. They're not representatives. They do what we want. They act in our place instead of us. They act as we would in our place. If they give us creativity, they will bring things out of us and do things for us that we may not have imagined. They will redefine who we think we are, who we think our allies are, and what we think is worth fighting for. And this is the paradox, that mass democracy expects representatives to defer to wishes and demands in constituencies, that if they're doing their job right, they're also trying to transform. And so that's what I mean. Clearly, that statement the call to occupy Wall Street, the claim we are the 99%, those were not crafted by elected officials or even established advocacy or interest groups. Those came out of people who are paying attention to politics and who are in pain, really. And those words move people more than anything that probably an elected official or someone who does advocacy for a living could think of, because you don't necessarily feel that same pain. And so I am not trying to argue in the book that there's nothing that ever comes from below. But I think it was also very significant, as you said, when a social movement gets some uptake from more official representative institutions or advocacy groups because it can get a better foothold, it can last longer, 
and it can grow membership. This isn't exactly what you meant, but it's kind of a conundrum that I think a lot about how we think about our elected officials. On the one hand, we want them to be genuine and to believe everything that they say. But on the other hand, we also want them to represent our ideas so that if they are genuine and standing up for something that they believe, but it conflicts with what we want them to do, then we're all of a sudden angry at them for not representing us. But on the other hand, if all they do is follow public opinion and it looks like they don't stand for anything, then we're upset at them for not being genuine. It's an irony that we have within the way that we think about our representatives. And I think it's really come clear, too, with the problems that Liz Cheney's dealing with right now, with the way that a lot of people in Wyoming do not like the fact that she took a very strong stand against Trump. But at the same time, Liz Cheney thinks it's her obligation or responsibility to be able to do that as an elected official. Yeah, that's a really, really good example because Liz Cheney is one of the most conservative members of Congress, but she is acting out of a duty to her party. And it makes her unpopular with voters and unpopular with many of her party colleagues. And I have to admire her for that. And I also have to say that, you know, that is, that is the job of a representative, to think of the long-term survival of the organization that is the party. Political parties subsidize political participation. They are the cheapest and easiest ways of getting involved in politics. You don't have to have a fortune to be a member of a party and canvas for the party or make phone calls or, you know, whatever. Even if all you do is vote and vote consistently with one party or another, that is the least expensive. It costs the least of the citizen to do that. We can't do without parties. I think she's got it right. And I believe that that counts as democratic representation because it has the larger interests of small d democracy at heart in what she's doing. And I probably wouldn't agree on anything else she's ever cast a vote on. <laughs> but, but this stand that she's taking means a lot to me as someone who believes that parties are central to democracy. At the same time, as you're describing the constituency paradox, I do feel a sense of a more traditionalist version of the way that politics work. We can think of it most easily when we think about elections, because citizens cast a vote and they're depending on the candidates to be able to make sense of what it is that they're voting for. Does social media change the dynamic? Does it change the necessity of the candidate, of the politician, to be able to frame the debate? Because now they have direct access, direct communication lines with their constituents on a regular basis. I think it actually can make it harder for politicians to frame the debate because I think that when you look at threads on social media, you can see that in the groups that people regularly participate in, there are spokespeople in those groups. And those spokespeople often frame what politicians are doing. So it is harder, I think, to keep control of the message because Social media is a horizontal mode of communication, much more than it is a vertical one. 
and what people like or you know what they give thumbs up and thumbs down to and how they spin or how they you know they'll even clip stuff so that they are deciding how much of the message that their friends and people who subscribe to them see and so i think it's made it more difficult it has though created an illusion of a kind of immediacy of communication that isn't correct right i mean even if i were to tweet my state representative or respond to one of their tweets or something, they wouldn't see it. They wouldn't read it. I mean, there's too much out there. And so where the real communication groups are with social media are these horizontal social groups. So when we think about politicians framing the debate and building constituencies for themselves and by nature, building the opposition's constituency against them, I imagine it creates a very binary process. Whether we're talking about a two-party system or even a multi-party system, you're either for the government or you're opposed to it. But in the book you write, to think of democracy means to think of it as plural. And when I think of a pluralistic democracy, I don't think of it as being binary, where we think of everything as for or against. I think of multiple dimensions and that there's as many possibilities as there are ways to imagine the problem itself. How is it that we can marry these two ideas together? How is it that a politician can frame subjects that make them very binary in terms of the political issues, while at the same time remaining committed to a pluralistic version of democracy? Mm -hmm. I wish we voted differently. First past the post voting really does mean that electoral campaigns tend to binaries because you can't afford to split the vote against yourself. So you can't have that kind of complexity. So I absolutely love the fact that New York just had this ranked choice voting election for its mayoral election because I think that actually it worked quite well there. There were mistakes that were made, but that didn't have to do with ranked choice voting. And I think it showed people what it means to have the possibility of saying, well, yeah, maybe these three choices would be fine with me. And to have candidates say, yeah, actually, we kind of like each other. <laughs> so <laughs> give her your second choice. You know, give me your first, but give her your second. This allows for just much greater complexity in terms of our political choices, which is a complexity that we have in almost every other domain of our lives. So one of the issues just is that I, I think that the moment of election in a two-party first-past-the-post system, meaning that a candidate wins with the most votes, whether they get a majority or not, that system is going to tend to binary, to map the political terrain in binary terms through the campaign and at the election. And that's going to have a mark on the way we think all the rest of the time also. So it's not just confined to that, but it will be most intense at that time. But I think that what we can see in the history of America is that at these watershed points where there was really a shift in what people thought was the most important thing to fight about, and when there was really a shift in the balance of power, what was going on then was plural coalition building among unlikely and unprecedented coalition partners. And that is when democracy is at its best, when I don't think of myself as being so fixed in my political position that you just can't move me and you can't suggest that maybe I have an alliance with someone who hadn't occurred to me. 
I think it's that kind of thing that we are losing in our politics right now because our elections do work in a system that makes us binary. And we have charged those elections, not just with the fact of I need a majority of votes to win, but also I need to demonize my opponent. And then, you know, elected officials demonize each other in office. Lisa Dish who is a rarity among political experts, a professor, a committed Democrat who believes in organized political parties as agents for change, and an elected representative herself. She is skeptical about the ability of leaderless groups to bring about lasting change. Lisa spoke with Justin Kempf on Democracy Paradox. Hear the full interview, plus more of Justin's shows and other podcasts on our network. Go to democracygroup.org. Jim will be back next week. We'll have a recommendation and no doubt another spirited conversation. I'm Richard Davies. Miranda Schaefer is our producer. This show is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits, mostly in the bridging space. Take a look at our website at DaviesContent.com. And thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. 